born and bred in the Waikato, in a town called Piopio. Jenny May Clarkson is a former police officer, a silver fern, and a touch player. But now she's known as the host on Breakfast TV. But she's more than just a television host. Jenny May Clarkson got her break in a singing competition on a radio station in Waikato. And now the television world is her oyster. But aside from all her mahi and the early morning wake-up calls, nothing beats being a mama to her tamariki. This is Jenny May Clarkson's story, and this is Indigenous 100. <laughs> Welcome to Indigenous 100. I'm trying not to put on, you know, the TV. <laughs> no, go on, do it. <laughs> Show me how it's done. Well, you know, because um, as a um, award-nominated um, host, I feel uh, slightly nervous and anxious about this. Oh, stop it. <laughs> Are you talking about... You being an I'm not a nomination. You're the one that's nominated. I'm not nominated. Oh, yeah. That thing. <laughs> that thing. We'll talk about that. Um, <laughs> what, I do, <laughs> what I do want to talk about is actually something we were just talking about um, before when we were being amateurs and not realising that the cameras are rolling, um, <laughs> is about, because um, I, think, I think back about code and um, what an awesome show that was. And it is my understanding that you... And Tawera, and this and this is uh, true, and, and it's the right thing to do. That you and Tawera have been approached to do something again with a with code. Um, however, I was not. Uh, I, I, My understanding was that you had, <laughs> and actually, that was part of the reason that I said yes, that I would be interested. <laughs> <laughs> it's not true. It's not true. Well, you were the original host. I'm just saying you were well, the original host and the rest of us just sat there and nodded. There was a slight employment issue. <laughs> the one chooses to forget about that occurred that, that and, and curtailed then, my burgeoning. And then that's where my career is. <laughs> so thank you. That's not where your career... Your career... This is what I remember. Your career took off as a result of a certain breakfast show in Hamilton. Oh, oh. Oh, so it is. I'm right, eh? That's a few haircuts ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What happened again? It was this. So it was a breakfast uh, morning show, classic hits. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I don't remember much, but I do remember how I got that job. And I was a police officer at the time in Hamilton, but I was studying full time as well at Waikato University. And I used to go into Starbucks. Most days, and I'd sit there and I'd actually do a lot of my work. Um, I'd actually put my policing career on hold at that point in time because I was trying to make the world championships for netball in Jamaica, which they went on to win without me. But, you know, I'm not better. I've moved on. <laughs> but I remember walking in to Starbucks that day, you know, getting ready to sit down and do some mahi, and uh, the local host, Ronnie Phillips, who was a legend when it came to radio in Hamilton. And he kind of waved at me. I said, oh, you know, hello, famous guy. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> and he said to me, oh, what are you up to? I said, oh, look, I'm just studying. I've taken six months leave from the police force, you know, trying to throw everything at going to the world champs. He said, oh, have you ever thought about radio? And I went, don't you have to have like a certain voice, you know, <laughs> uh, to do that or, or experiences? And he said, 
what do you mean a radio voice? And I said, no, I hadn't. And he goes, well, we should have a conversation. And weeks later, I'd left the police force and gone to work in radio. And I guess I've always been that person that goes, I'll give it a go. And if I suck at it, then at least I know that I'm not supposed to be doing that. But if I don't take that opportunity, how will I ever know? And I'd rather not live with that. Mm. And so that was the beginning of my media career. Yeah, in Hamilton. Couple of things. Why the police? Always. When I uh, got into secondary school, you know, pure, pure, um, you know where that is. Hey, pure, pure, little town of the king. I'll tell you what, how I remember pure, pure. <laughs> it used to have a, a shop, like the, I think it was a garage or a cafe or something, and you could get a $5 combo. And the $5 combo was um, uh, not a leg of lamb, what do you call it? Lamb on a bone <laughs> and, and two scoops of mashed potato with a Coke. <laughs> that was the $5 combo. And I remember, I remember thinking, this place is awesome. I tell you what, some of my mates remember Pure Pure for driving down the main street in the afternoon on a Sunday and seeing somebody walk down the street with a sheep in a chain. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that's never happened before. <laughs> never seen that before. Um, I have been known to have a couple of digs of Peel Peel by asking people who, I, I won't name them, but she happens to be a Dr. Farrah Park, <laughs> yeah. Who, her and I the... grew up together, actually. We were we grew up right next door to one another, oh, yeah. and um, she looked after me when I first started school. Um, my cousin, Philip Coffin, was an all-black yeah. back in the day. Um, there's been a number of people that have come out of Peel Peel and gone on to do amazing things, Julie, and amazing things. It's a beautiful community. Anyway, what were we talking about? Why was I mentioning Peel Peel? You were at Peel Peel School and you yeah. always wanted to be a policeman. A oh, police yes. Person, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I th think that was because I'd been caught stealing some stuff from a shop in Peel Peel. And that's the bizarre thing. My parents managed um, on behalf of Alfano, the local dairy, for a number of years and then I just got myself into a bit of trouble you know being that rebellious kind of kid that I was and I remember going through the whole process of doing a family group conference all of those things and I'll never forget there was one man and my mum used to say it to me all the time when I'd ring home and she'd go you know he asked how you're doing we came out of this family group conference and he I was standing there he knew I could hear him and he said to my mum I wish I had a daughter like yours and I was just standing there going, you know, what's this guy on about? Because he could see something that I couldn't. And, you know, when somebody speaks life over you like that, when you feel like your life is going in a completely different direction, the power of those words that they had on me and the potential that he saw in me made me think about, okay, so what is that? What is it that he sees in me? And from time to time, he would ring my mum, say he'd see me on telly or say, you know, how's she going? And I'll never forget that. But going through that whole process, and I had mates, you know, doing bits and pieces at the time. And I knew I wanted to help people. And for me, the police was a way that I saw that I could do that. When I got into the job, I realised there were a number of challenges within it. Yeah. But fundamentally, for me, it was about service and it was about helping people. So when I was 19, I went down to police college um, and 
Yeah, I mean, I think about it now and I go, gosh, that was way too young. I'd had a number of experiences in my life up until that point, though, where I felt like my my experiences and my, oh, I don't know if it's maturity in, in different situations, I knew I was in the right place, even though I was really young. Um, and I really loved my time within the police, but I never saw it as a, a long-term thing. I didn't know what else I was going to do, but I didn't see it long-term. I didn't want to be a female in my 40s still doing frontline or being in that that particular environment. Being the commissioner? Or... No, see, and I don't know. I never had those ambitions when I was in the police because I wanted to do the work with the people. Mm. I worked in uh, um, youth aid, worked with young people, trying to work through some of their stuff. And that's where I always kind of saw where I could make a difference. Yes, you can make a difference in another way when you start to climb the ranks, right? Mm. But it was never anything that I kind of thought, yep, that's that's what I want to do. I want to be a sergeant. I want to be a senior sergeant. I want to, you know, the next level. I, I remember you, because you were on the promo material. Yes. Whenever the police used to come around, the liaison officers used to come around and come to schools and at, you know, Tokyo College, you'd see these posters of you and someone else. And at the time, we kind of knew who you were because you were an athlete. Mm and quite a superlative athlete at the time, um, and we saw you in these posters and going, oh, yeah, wow, police could be a career choice. Yeah. Um, and it was then that the police had started looking and actively promoting Māori into the police force. Mm. And given our kind of experience with the police, that was an interesting thing to do. Yeah. Um, but I could see the point of it and having you in those promotional photos. And you know, like I don't reckon, you know, because I was young and kind of naive, 19, I didn't, you know, for me, it was just, like, oh, yeah, it's a pro, you know, it's they're using me as a silver fern to kind of put my image out there. And yeah, I look back now and I go, yeah, because I was female, I was Māori. Yes, I was doing well in terms of being a, a face that people potentially knew given that I was playing for the silver ferns yep. at that time. But during that time, I, you know, none of that kind of, none of that dawned on me. Yeah, and it's interesting now to to look back retrospectively about you know what they what the promotion that was going on at that time, and, and I don't have an issue with it. I'm not yeah. saying that I just didn't see it as that at the time. But you look back now and you go, yeah, of course, tick tick tick. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. When you so because at the time, as I said, you were a superlative athlete. Actually, the, most of us knew you because... Uh, they might be pushing it just, no, just a little. Well, no, well, actually, the reason why most of us knew you, yes, you were a civil firm, but you were also an awesome touch player. Mm. And that's how most of Te Aute kind of knew you was through actually touch. <clears throat> um, because, you know, some of us... Yeah, that's right. Rugby. Um, <laughs> mentioning no names, <laughs> the present company included, but, um, uh, but you know, because of touch. And um, I would have thought that you would have had or thought about opportunities in sport to continue into the career. Because, you know, look at what's happening now with former athletes who have become commentators and all that kind of stuff. So given you were playing both sports really well, that at that time you might have been thinking about a career doing something or other in sport, no matter what it was. You know, Waitamoni was working at the Hillary Commission, I think it was called, in those yep. days. Yeah, it was. Kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, Bill Cameron was obviously doing in basketball, so there were lots of mighty athletes who were doing really well, and it seemed that there might have been something there that you were thinking about. No, never, never at that point. Um, coaching was always, I think, when you become a senior athlete, 
and your body can no longer cope with being playing full time, you know, and you just get a quarter here and a quarter there, your brain automatically switches to that. Um, and so I think coaching was a natural, more of a natural fit for me than anything in terms of administration with the game itself. Mm. I got I dabbled in a little bit of commentary when it used to be on uh, TVNZ, mm. and I remember again. This is one of those moments where I could see that my career was coming to an end. I could see I was kind of on the outer. There were younger players that were coming through, and then I thought, "Gosh, what else can I do to stay in the game, to stay at an international level within the game?" And then I straight away commentary yeah. knew nothing about it, but then started badgering the executive producer for netball and just go, hey, look, if you ever, you know, if you ever need me to come in and do anything, then I'm quite happy to. I mean, back in those days, it was Brendan Telfer and Julie Townsend. Mm. You know, they were the go-to. April, Jeremia as well. So you had two former Silver Ferns. So I saw that as an opportunity for me to get into netball commentary. And I did. And again, I had no idea what I was doing, but you kind of take all those experiences from playing at an international level and you go, Okay, you just gotta kind of go with it, and that natural instinct of you gotta, you know, you gotta be ready no matter what happens. I think that's what uh, al- allowed me to, or I was able to step into that space, and then you know, I, I mean, I don't know how many times I would have stuffed it up, but again, when you with the sporting background, it's just like, yep, made a mistake. How do I do better? How do I get better? Um, and so that was my kind of progression yeah. into a, 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 a sporting career outside of actually playing. So maintaining those kind of sports disciplines, transferable skills. I still do it. Yeah. I mean, I still do it. I still do it when, like you know, how? live television, you just kind of go, nobody cares at home that something technical's just happened, that you've just had a phone call from someone that, you know, has really upset you or has shaken you or... You know, there's something that's happened in and around you, but people at home who are watching the TV, they don't care. They don't know. I shouldn't say they don't care, but they don't know about that. All the expectation is is that you perform. That is no different from putting on a black dress um, and walking out onto the court and something's happened prior to. Expectation is you're going to perform. And if you didn't, why not? And... That is the mentality that I take into what I do every single day when I'm in front of the television. I just kind of go, people have an expectation. Um, I mean, I I care less about what people think, um, but you still go in there going, right, I'm here to do a job, I'm here to, you know, whatever that is. And the expectation from people is that you will do that. I'll pick up on the point about caring less about what people think. Um, because, and, and it's my view that uh, Māori women in particular <clears throat> in media uh, get a crap load more than we do in terms of the negative feedback mm-hmm. and the way in which people want to talk about Māori women in media <clears throat> and the way in which they respond. I'll, I'll come to that. But just to circle back a little bit to... Jamaica, uh, because you were fairly successful up until that point. Why did you want to go to that World Cup in Jamaica? Because um, it seems that um, it's it's kind of interesting that at that time you still had a drive mm. to want to perform at the highest level, even though it seems in the back of your mind you're still thinking like, I could be getting near the end of the career kind of thing. Yeah. 
which talks to ultimate resolve, yeah. steely, determined characteristic of a person. Yeah, and I and and all of that, and I did everything to try and get myself to the World Cup. The thing that I didn't do was actually took care of myself, and this might be kind of, um, you know, the courts tihariaho. But at that time, I um, I had an issue with my body image. And so for me, I wasn't eating well enough. Um, and I wasn't actually physically, um, I want to say well enough. But I really struggled with what I looked like. And so, yeah, and I see you looking at me like that. And I, you know, I think for, for, for many women, you go through that, you know, how you feel about yourself. And I was training really hard, but I wasn't fueling my body well enough. And I can still remember turning up to those trials. I knew I was good enough, but when I turned up to those trials... I had nothing in the tank. I can still remember we had to play an hour game. It was just one of the, you know, um, trial games that we played. And I couldn't even, getting into that first half, getting towards the first half, and I was like, I've got nothing, you know, no energy. Um, and it's not, again, till you look back years later and you go, what was I doing? What was I doing? I was expecting my body to do all of this and I was putting it under so much stress, but I wasn't putting enough food into my body. And I know at the time it caused lots of issues within my relationship and with friends as well. You know, I would go out to a restaurant and I would have eaten my boiled chicken before I went out to dinner because I didn't want to put any weight on. And I just got into this real, uh, yeah, pattern and it was, it was actually had been building up for a number of months. Now, I wouldn't say that I was, uh, you know, I, 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 I wasn't, I wasn't anorexic or anything like that. Wouldn't go that far. But I wasn't, I wasn't well. And I just had this real issue with body image during that time. And I know that that, that honour level cost me a potential place at a World Cup. Everybody that went was stunning. I mean, you know, Tima Potter George was there. Um, uh, Annie Robes. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that mid-court was incredible. Yeah. And so there was no... Uh, I didn't... I, 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 it was me. I, it was what I did to myself that I believe that cost me for that particular World Cup. I mean, I've missed out on the World Cup, um, you know, yeah. the four years beforehand. Um, but yeah, it, it, and it's not something that I've really talked about, but I think it's really important too, because, you know, I see that sometimes in different athletes. Um, but I just, I didn't have the, even though we were given information around nutrition, et cetera, you know, I, I I really didn't take on a lot of that. And I felt that what I was doing was the best thing for me. And in the end, you know, it cost me. Yeah. 
how do you deal with the rejection of not making that squad, particularly when you are talking about the issues and the way in which you view yourself no. and see yourself at that time? Because, ironically, you then decide to go and pursue a career in the media. I know. No, no. I mean, hello. Think about it. In front of the camera every day. Um, going back to how you deal with, you know, not the non-selection. I think by about the third time, I'll start going Because <laughs> <laughs> it happened a few times. I always say, I reckon I was the most dropped silver fern of all time. But in saying well, I've that, heard you say that. Yeah. And, and, you know, and everything, uh, I'm a big believer in everything happens for a reason. Oh. And there are different lessons that you learn every single time. And you don't cope with it when you're first told. It doesn't matter how many times you don't cope with it. Um, you know, there's crying, there's I'm embarrassed, I don't want to go out into the street, you know, like you think the world and everybody is going, oh my God, what a loser. She just she, she just missed out on the silver ferns. I mean, you know, but that, that was how I was thinking and I didn't want to go out because in actual fact I'd built myself to be the silver fern and then it was taken away and then it was like, oh my God, who am I now? And I, I remember getting a, um, a letter from my twin nieces and they said, no matter what, auntie, we love you. And it was that that I went, wow, yeah, I'm a good auntie. I'm a good person. It's okay. And it wasn't until actually that and my nieces and nephews and when my father, I mean, you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, my brothers will always, but you know, oh, useless out. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Not good enough. You see, the reason why I um I smile and laugh about this is, and if I can come back to the code thing, you know, when you're sitting on a couch with um one of the greatest Kiwis ever to play the game, yep, and Tawa and Nico, uh, and you know, Rewa Hudson then now Harriman um played at Wimbledon, you know. <laughs> Uh, world-ranked tennis player, and, well, Slade and Mutsi were athletes. Um, <laughs> they must have done something along the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, the, and the, the the intros for Code used to say, you know, um, I was always the last one up, and he said, Julia Wilcox, you know, won the 400 metres of Chote in 1989. <laughs> um, you, you do realise that um, by comparison to the rest of us, like, there's a special kind of thing that makes an athlete an athlete. And you were a superlative athlete, you you were particularly at that time, which is why for me it's interesting when I hear you talk about that because most of us don't even get a chance to even get considered to go and play at a World Cup. Hmm. Although we want to and we have aspirations to, we're not we're not physically gifted <laughs> <laughs> or coordinated <laughs> or rhythmic enough. You're before your time. <laughs> Before, That's during, and after my time, I still wasn't good. But, but do you know what I mean? Like, like, um, and I and I completely understand um, the way in which philosophically your your mind does things to you. Um, but you know, for for a lot of us, but you know, we see you as heroes. Do you know what I mean? This, and, you know, I think about you know, you talk about Tarwita, and that's like, I just love him, not for what he did on the field. But how he makes you feel when you're in his presence, that's what I love about Tawira. But I, for, for me, the, the sport came easily. It was a natural thing. 
everything you kind of, you know, turned your hand to just seemed to be a natural progression. But didn't media come easily? Yeah, it did, but it's the same mentality. You, it comes easily, but then there's the expectation on top of that. So whilst playing netball, playing touch or whatever else I was doing, the skill part came easy. You knew that there was a lot of work that had to be done. And again, that's similar to media. I feel comfortable. I'm comfortable in front of the camera, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done behind the scenes. Not only about the the work that you're actually uh, doing, whether that's interviews or whether that's uh, training a certain skill for um, the court or the field, but there's the internal work that needs to be done as well. Mm-hmm. And there's always been a sense for me of not quite being good enough, you know, even though in Yes, I did wear the black dress. Yes, I wore the black singlet for um, the women's touch team. But there's always that sense because you have high expectations on yourself that these are the things that you should always be hitting. you know. And the milestone events, whether it's a, a World Cup or a Commonwealth Games, and if you don't quite make that, you know, that does play, well, for me personally, that does play on me. Mm. And I think I've always kind of carried that, and I still carry that today in my media work. Even now? Absolutely. Probably even more now. Really? Because... Why is that? There's just a... Mainstream. um, You're just not really sure whether you hit the mark. And when you don't, you feel like you don't. There's always a question mark of, wow, should I actually be doing this? Am I... Am I... Am I actually good enough to be doing this? Oh, somebody else. Surely somebody else would be better at doing this stuff than I would. You think that even now? Yeah. Really? I, it, so throughout a program, and I've, I work really hard to try and uh, even out my emotions, but even now I'll finish an interview and just go, oh, my God. I don't even ask that. Like, you know, there's always that doubt and questioning. Um Sometimes it'll happen during an interview where you're kind of going, oh, you know, looking at the the person that you're interviewing and going, well, should I have, I'm not sure I should have gone there. And so that questioning continues afterwards and then you've got to kind of push that to the side and go, right, now I'm going to go and talk to the Deputy Prime Minister. (laughs) You know, so you have to kind of pick yourself back up again. Yeah. But that, that is a constant for me. I'm constantly battling that. See, I'm okay to talk about it now. You know, back in the day, whenever that day was, there was a time when I would go, no, 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 I have to, like, look as though, you know, really, I'm in charge, I know what I'm doing. But I don't think, for most people, I believe that that's how they feel as well in different things that they do. Sometimes we feel like a bit of a fraud. Sometimes we feel like, you know, somebody else should be doing what we do. The imposter syndrome. The old imposter syndrome. But what I... See, this is what I struggle to understand about that is that um you know we talked earlier about the feedback thing that you get right and you tend not to worry about that too much push it aside there's no point yeah so the whole weight of that expectation is individual it's you yep do you think that's what makes you a really good broadcaster 
See, now this is going to be troubling for you because you're not going to agree with me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm very humbled that you, those words came out of your mouth. But no, no, but you but know, but never, you know, you know that. Never, no, see, I would never call. I, I'm in front of the camera and I'm being me. And that's potentially, you know, where I don't feel like I'm good enough sometimes. But, but you know, that's what audiences struggle to see nowadays is authenticity. Yes. What most people will see is a personality that's derived, carefully crafted, uh, cultivated to a cult of personality that's been workshopped and focus grouped mm. to death, presented in real time. What people don't see is authenticity. Mm. Which again brings you back to the thing I just said, which but, is what makes sure you Maybe that's part of it. That's maybe that's for me. That's part of it. You know, I will just if I stuff something up, I don't mind. I'll yeah. I'll take it. I'll cop it. Whatever. Um, and maybe that is part of it is the fact that I'll see my own flaws, and so from that point of view, I'm going, oh god, you know, should I be doing this then? Shouldn't somebody who's more cultivated? <laughs> Who you know is um, yeah maybe that guy who you described should be in front of the camera doing this more than I should be. I don't even know how I've lasted this long to be perfectly honest. Seriously, I, I feel, I'm I, grateful for it all. Yeah, I, I feel like you you need to be told off. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wonder though. This is part of this is see my dad's no longer with us. And he, and I never understood him. I reckon I'm closer to my dad now than I ever have been because all his lessons kept coming back yeah. to me. And I'm going, oh, that's what you mean, dad. Yeah. You know, because him and I were always pushed back because he'd always kind of say, you know, well, hang on, who, who are you? Hey. And so we'd always have these kind of back and forth. Um, and it, that was him. You know, when... When we were in certain situations and it was a celebration of me, he would go, yes, I love you, but actually let's look back at how you got here. And so everything up until, yep, this is me presenting, but actually it's not you. It's what's gone before you that's allowed you to be in this space. And I think my dad, I take, I like to think, and if you're humble, I don't know whether you actually say this, but to take his humility wherever I go and and to remember who you are and who you're representing. And I know we all do that to a certain extent, but I take that lesson from my dad and it sits with me, whatever I do. See, that that's the thing that, okay, I understand it now. It's the um, humility is your humanity. Mm-hmm. And that's what plays out. Um, every day, which I see is different from the imposter syndrome thing, to be honest with you. Completely understand the humility, but because someone who doesn't have much of it um, <laughs> recognizes it 100 miles away. Um, uh, but uh, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but uh, now, now I understand. I, I do think that that's different from, from the imposter syndrome thing. And, you know, you said you're, you're and this is great because you're now in yeah. a much better position to be able to talk about this stuff than previously was the case. And I wonder why that is. And is that just a life trajectory thing? Or is that from um, doing things and being brave and bold enough to be able to do them like learning mm. to do? And putting yourself in... What was that? Oh, no. 
<laughs> but putting yourself in being brave and bold, bold enough, bold and brave enough to be able to do that. Knowing that lots of people have trauma, they get into learning a language, particularly yeah. as a second language learner, and everything that goes with it in childhood and da da da. Um, but you've got to have the, yeah, you've got to have the courage, and the vulnerability yeah. to put yourself in that learning position in the first place, which is the admirable thing, which comes back to the humility thing. But but is that part of the reason why, having gone through that, that you're able to talk about this stuff now a lot more because it's a fairly recent experience? That has helped formed, you know. So, I, I again, I just think it's maybe, and I'll bring I'll bring this in here. I, maybe now I'm a mama oh, yeah. as well, and so I don't know what it is from seven years ago and having my boys to the person that I am now is very very different. Mm. I was very selfish. Um, went in pursuit of something and I was courageous because I didn't have anybody relying on me so I would put myself into positions where I was being challenged where I knew that maybe I was a little bit out of my depth but you know let's let's just see where this goes television yeah I'm out of my depth at the moment but I reckon I've got it I feel comfortable you know and you keep pushing in that way and again bringing all that sporting experience back into those kinds of scenarios that I found myself in. I, I actually think now I'm I'm a lot more um, open to being vulnerable. Actually, I have to thank my beautiful husband for that as well because he cries all the time. So, <laughs> But, you know, he makes it okay. Yeah. He made it okay for me to be that way. And I just think... I want my I want my sons to be proud of of what I do, and who I am, and that this is who I am. Mama at home is the same mama that you see on television, mm. and that that's good enough. Mm. Whoever you are, that that is good enough. I don't think I would have been brave like that. Well, I don't think I was before I had my sons. Okay, okay. no, I understand that. Um, I don't know if that answered the question, but no, no, it did, and uh, yeah, and I think it, I think it explains it well. The other thing I wanted to talk about the real journey thing is because I'm always interested by being willing oh, yes. to take a real journey, um, and what motivates that, and how you deal with some of the issues that accumulate when you start learning the language that comes to the fore, <laughs> and you have to deal with them uh, to continue on your learning journey. And I wanted to, but I'm curious about how you dealt with that. Because learning, and this is why I think it's incredibly admirable, learning the language far later on than, say, when you're in your teens or whatever it is, is a much tougher proposition than learning it when you're yeah. way younger. And you got to, and, you know, um, you have to put yourself in a really vulnerable space to be able to do it. Because... Yeah, but I didn't know that. <laughs> really? I didn't know that when I went into it. Pino. Pono. I, I I thought, yep, so my friend, Billy Joe Ropiha, bounces into TVNZ when I'm working there and she's like, gosh, I'm learning te reo Māori, I'm going to Takiura and it's amazing. And I would see her every day and she was just vibrant and alive and I could see the changes in her from learning. And I was like, I want to be, I'm, I want that. 
I want some of that. So I naively went into this journey thinking, yes, everything's going to be fine. And then I found out it was completely different. <laughs> and it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah, Hands but... ever. Like playing at an international level, playing in a test, playing in a Commonwealth Games. Being a police officer. Being a police officer. All of that because what I didn't realise was the trauma that sat within. And then I didn't understand any of that. Uh, there was lots of tears. There was lots of, why cannot I not learn my own language? Why is it so difficult for me to learn? And you could see other people in your class starting to, you know, all of a sudden you could see the light bulbs going off. Or your Pākehā mates who are in the class with you picking it up really quickly. And I just was thinking, I know I'm, you know, I think I'm intelligent. I think I'm smart enough to be able to do this, but I just couldn't get it. Everybody kept talking about, oh, you had these moments and everything will just make sense. I'm like, I'm still waiting <laughs> for that moment. So I went into it, seriously, that naive. And for three months, while we were all learning, nine to three, every single day, we all, every single one of us just sat there and we were like, okay, right, just got to go home, learn, go home, learn. Surely at some point, this is all going to make sense. And then it wasn't until one day, one of the girls in our class broke down crying. And she said, I just don't know if I can do this. And then there was like this collective sigh of, oh, I, said, I feel exactly the same. Everybody in our class felt exactly the same. But maybe again, we came, came back to expectations that we all should, you know, we should know. And so, yes, it was the hardest thing I have ever done. And from that, again, another chance to tap into that humility of how difficult it actually is. But not only that, humility in the sense of the outcome and the fulfillment and knowing that that's something inside that's been missing and why you walk around with your head down when you're at a marae, why when somebody's, you know, you know speaks to real Māori, you kind of go, okay, I'm not looking. <laughs> I'm just looking over here because please don't speak Māori to me. <laughs> hey, you know that. And then at the end of that year of being able to walk with your head up, and look somebody in the eye who can speak to them. I might not be able to answer and I might not quite understand, but I understand more than I did a year ago. So that experience was life-changing. Life-changing for me. And the most beautiful thing about it for me was my dad was with me during that time. He would come, come up on the weekends, he'd drive up on his own. Oh, cool, I think we spent most of the time arguing. <laughs> <laughs> Just say it. And I'm like, I can't say it, Dad. I don't have the words. And so he was there, you know, every step of the way. Just encouraging me, just being there. I remember I was going to a Warriors game and I was taking Scotty's book. And I was trying to, like, say some of the things that were in that book. So... But dad was learning with me as well because he was old school. Yeah. And so when they had conversations, there was no, um, what do you call it at the beginning of a sentence? You know, <laughs> but where it's the time, Kate said, yeah, all of that stuff. So because when they're in conversation, they know what each other's yeah. talking about, right? So he was learning um, with me. And 
so, you know, like I say, it was life-changing, but it was a really special memory for me to be able to have that about my dad mm. and how much it actually meant to him for me to be learning. Because he always tried to push me. Hey, you know, ah, no, dad, I'm busy, busy, busy doing me. I'm busy, you know, playing netball and going around all over the place. But that was always his wish for me. You know, now I understand why. Yeah, I understand why. Kore ro Māori ana koe ki o Tamari? Oh, te nuinga o te wāia tahi wākau. Oha, whaere ahau. Kore ro Pākeha ki a raua. Yeah, there are kura. Te kura akunga o Manurewa. Like, um, you know, that was a decision. I'm really grateful because my husband's Pākeha, yeah. but there was never any question that our boys would go to a kura. And... They won't speak Māori at home because we're predominantly uh, uh, English-speaking whare. But I'll continue to speak uh, the reo to them. But my heart sings when we either go to something at the kura and there's a conversation between them and their kaioko or different times at home when they forget and all of a sudden, dere haere te reo. I don't say anything because I don't want to shut them down, but my heart just bursts with so much pride, but also that they have this taonga that me, my sister and my brothers, we didn't mm. have. And I just keep looking and going, you fellas don't know how lucky you are. Hey. And they're looking at me and, you know, these are the things I used to say to them. And they just look at me and go, what? You know? It's true that um, I, I really appreciate the point you make about um, that generation not knowing how lucky they are to have the do around because, you know, for many of us it wasn't the case. And particularly if you're learning at that age and struggling to learn and all that kind of thing. <laughs> um, I, I get a little grumpy sometimes when the kids will say, Mwah, oh, do You'll go, yeah, okay, let me give you a life lesson. Let me give you a life lesson. Yeah. Yeah, uh, 1993. <laughs> First meeting to Mozi Karatu, you know, and then, and then I go, that's your stuff. Yes. And, but, but in right. a, in a, in a weird, weird, right. weird, wonderful way, yeah. it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah. here's the thing to tie back to, to a little bit about your mahi is that I actually think that your knowledge and acquisition of the real has made you a better broadcaster. Yes. Okay, well, I'm glad you agree with that because I was about to tell you off if you didn't. <laughs> um, um, and then that's why I think it makes you a superlative broadcaster because having gone through that journey, one, and then two, learning, and then three, just being able to, in certain times, you know, when there's some really tough interviews and quarter you got to do, particularly with Fano, who are doing it hard or things have happened to them, um, the real, he real kawe aroha te reo Māori. And I, you don't get that with English. I, I don't. And that's yeah, no. awesome because I have poor English. <laughs> but, um, and, and I don't have a great crotchet of words, <laughs> but, um, he māma ake ma te reo Māori te aroha yeah, kawe. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen you do interviews where that ha has happened, just organically and naturally. You know, and I think that's... Uh, yeah, although I would say I don't do it enough. That's where I would say there are days when I, you know, 
I'm thinking, why why am I using video word for this? Why am I, you know, incorporating it? Because I understand the platform that I have. I understand that um, being on that mainstream program for three hours every single day, that there's an opportunity for you to be able to, um, I mean, normalise. I mean, I hate that. I mean, is there another way to say normalise, but just to, you know, so, and, you know, one of the, one of the most... Uh, Beautiful things I and I'm grateful for on our program is when we have a guest and the guest says, Morena, did you Hey, and I'm going, please. Go how are you? Like, oh you know, yes, okay, the pronunciation's not great, but the fact that they feel comfortable enough to do that, for me, I go, that's winning because if we can do that in bits, you know. Throughout yep. uh, the program and have their influence on people, then I kind of go, yeah, that's a little win. But at the same time, I still go, oh gosh, I could be, you know, throwing in a little bit of this here and there. So, and again, lots of expectations that you put on yourself, which is which is yeah. fine. But um, it also means that you find yourself with that platform um, being critiqued uh, overly so yep. by lots of New Zealanders who have a real issue with the reinvigoration of Tadil and mainstream broadcasting and just the mere place actually of mm. a Maori woman who has the temerity to want to use that platform to be able to help reinvigorate the bill. So how do you deal with that? I don't think about those people. I think about my dad mm. and I go look at us dad. <laughs> you know, that's it. That's I think about this little girl from Piu Piu who grew up uh, in a loving household with not much, mm. uh, who had no real, who is in a, a privileged position to have now, have the real. And I think about me and my dad, and I just mm. think, choice, eh, dad? <laughs> hey. So everything else doesn't matter outside of that. And I don't even have the breakfast inbox for emails on my computer because, you know, I, I would not want to speak if I saw some of the things that come through that uh, email inbox. And so that's where I choose to focus my energy and I also... Uh, have always with me uh, people like Scotty and Stace who throughout, they were there right from the beginning when I went through Takiura. Scotty would come over to uh, my flat and my mates from Takiura would come around and he would just, whatever we wanted to do, he was there. There was no time frame. Stace would turn up, a little bit of kai, you know, I didn't, I didn't have to, they just did that. And that kindness, I'll never forget that. And that kindness continues with them. And I think about them and the amount of time and energy that they gave to me at that time, the time and energy that they give to me still, whenever, I, you know, there's something that I'm not 100% certain about. So that's where I choose to focus my energy on 
when I have the opportunity to to use that ill. That's what. That's where I. That's where my thoughts go. Not to the naysayers, not to everyone else out there who you can't stand it. Oh, you know. <laughs> I get that there's someone who on my RNC show, someone who texts actually sometimes before I've even gone on that. Going, No, not this Maori show again. Yeah. Yeah, I'm um, still listening though. Hey. Well and I called it out one day, I said, Oh, oh I got this at you know, nine past twelve and um I wasn't even on air. Yeah. And then I got the text going, Yeah, fair enough, Jules, I'll wait till you come on. <laughs> <laughs> and then, oh, okay. and then next week that eleven past twelve. <laughs> And they will towards you. Oh, no, that's very <laughs> <laughs> um, You know, sorry, this is a point that I do want to bring up, though, while we're talking kind of mainstream broadcasting, is that, you know, when you're having certain conversations, sometimes people around you don't understand what you're feeling. Um, gosh, I don't, I'm trying to find words to be able to explain that. That can be a lonely space. When something is said or something happens and all of a sudden you have this welling of emotions and you can't quite articulate it, but it comes from past generations and that starts to well up inside you and you're looking left and you're looking right and you're going, you know, who, who 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 else is feeling the same thing? And when you're in those positions, it's very lonely, and I find that really hard. It it used to be much more difficult um, because there was also the stupid game we would play against ourselves, where our platform would separate us mm. from each other. Mm. Now, well, I think we're much more collegial, collaborative now, and we talk about these kind of things. Yeah. So um, I won't say their names, but there are people that I talk to a bit, you know, who host current affairs shows, and we talk about some of the things that are happening. Again, in particular for Māori women, mm. who are hosts of these shows, who are getting it full on. And it's hard. It's hard yeah. when you know it's there. Yeah. That, even though, yep, don't read it, and I go to those places and I think about those who have supported me and I think about my dad... Mm. Sometimes something just, you know, it manages to sneak through all of yeah. that. And that's when it's lonely because, again, you're kind of going, who, who? in that moment, I can have conversations later on, yeah. but in that moment, and then it's camera. Okay, right, here I am. Yeah. I've got to go again. Those are the tough moments. Yeah, I, I still think we've got a lot to do together to try and talk about some of those issues that will... Actually, they're ever increasing. It's, oh. it's exponential the way in which that critical feedback, that's not even the right way to put it right now. No. I mean, we're going to be you know, <clears throat> when that comes, how we deal with it collectively. Um, and we need to do a better job of that. Um, we're fast running out of time, um, which I know is a really TV thing to say. Yeah, no. We're up against commercial breaks and we're running out of time. Yeah. But. Um, but um, <laughs> But uh, but before I let you go, um, 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 so I just want to go back to the code thing uh, because have you let, have you let it go? <laughs> no, like this is this, this is the time I brought it up in this conversation, <laughs> and um, you know, and 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 I, I get it because you know I was um, summer summarily dismissed. 
part three through part way through a season. Um, but um, again, I'll say my career took off at that point. <laughs> Peaks and troughs. Peaks and troughs. Um, and look at you now. <laughs> but um, no, but the reason why it comes up is because. Um, do you think there's more that we should be doing again collectively across platforms where, so yeah, I'm talking about code, but we, we need to be doing something together. And if so, what is it? Because you've got a platform, people are going to platform. I'm going to call mine a platform. It's more a bench and a channel. <laughs> it's a platform. <laughs> but, you know, we, we've got things that we can do. Do you, do you think there's space here, an opportunity to be yeah, able to I'm, I, I'm sure there is, and I'm sure there's far cleverer people who can answer that question. I think... The fact that we're in spaces is a good place. It's a good start for us to be. Yeah. Now, that's a space then to be able to build on and to collaborate. But I just rejoice in the fact that, you know, whether it's RNZ, whether it's TVNZ, whether it's TV3, that we are starting to occupy some of those spaces. And so we've come a long way in that sense. Yeah. And I just, I'll, I'll just celebrate that and then you can do all the collaboration stuff. <laughs> um, hey, I didn't ask half the things I was going to ask you. Cool. Choice, yeah, that's good. Yeah, well, you know. Um, yeah. So I hate being interviewed. Can I just say that? Well, you did say that when we yeah. were off air. Um, you did say that you don't really like being, but this wasn't an interview. This was a conversation. But uh, but I think a neat and conversation that needed to be had, particularly around some of the things that you've discussed, which I think are really important, which will talk to a lot of people who will watch this. You know, and if nothing else, I kind of think. Isn't isn't that what it's about? Isn't isn't broadcasting about allowing people to connect, to be seen, to be heard when they're listening to a conversation, when they're listening to an interview, that at some point during that time they go, Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, I know it. I know what you're talking about. So that for me is broadcasting. Yeah. Is connection. It, you know, I'm just forlorn about the fact that if you had a better interviewer, <laughs> I think you really. And I have listened to um, Indigenous 100, and I've loved it, and I think that that has a lot to do with your. Uh, insight and your expertise and what you're able to draw out of people. So well, I'm I'm going to do what you did and um and ignore the positivity <laughs> which they seem to know was see, expressed. See, see? <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, not just for talking to us today. Again, a very TV thing to say, um, but actually for doing what you're doing because I watched this morning. Oh gosh, no, I did, I, and um. I just love it. I love seeing you on the show. I love seeing you on TV. I love hearing you. I love the way in which you do it because there's no one else doing it the way that you're doing it. People try and they hit, they miss the mark, whereas I think you hit the mark a lot every time you're on the screen and I just hope you keep doing it. Thank you. Didn't know where we Clean up, clean up.